What kind of book are you in the mood for, Kelsey? Well, I always love a good mystery. Well, you are in luck because our guest today has written a new mystery that is getting lots of buzz. Benjamin Stevenson is an award-winning stand-up comedian and author of three brilliant novels. His first, Greenlight, was shortlisted for the Ned Kelly Award for Best Debut Crime Fiction in 2019. His second novel, Either Side of Midnight, was shortlisted for the International Thriller Writers Award for Best Original Paperback. We are very excited to talk with Benjamin about his third novel, Everyone in My Family Has Killed Someone, which made the Library Reads top picks for January. Welcome to the first 50 pages, Benjamin. Thanks for having me. So librarians are, of course, honest and reliable. (laughs) And because we want to play it straight with our listeners, we should probably mention that you are an Australian author. And through the marvels of modern technology, we get to talk to you on the other side of the world today, which we find very, very cool. Um, I know, and what a thrill it is for me to not have to get up at 3 a.m. for uh, for an across-the-world chat. So you guys have really done me a solid there. So everyone in my family has killed someone, published first in Australia and the U.K. last year, and is just published in the States in January of this year. And if you just hear the title of your latest book, Everyone in My Family Has Killed Someone, it sounds like it could be a bit gruesome. But this book really is a nod to the golden age of mystery writing, and it's really quite funny. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about the story? Yeah, absolutely. So Everyone in My Family Has Killed Someone is about the Cunningham family, and Ernest is our narrator, and he's joining his family for a reunion uh, set at a ski resort during the winter in Australia. So they all meet up at this family reunion and um, Ernest, he loves Golden Age Mysteries. He writes sort of books about how to write Golden Age Mysteries. Um, So he's sort of a crime novelist light. And he, during this reunion, his family has a whole bunch of friction. There's some stuff that he's done in the past, et cetera, et cetera. And then on the first morning, they find an anonymous dead body in the snow who looks like they've died in a fire despite the fact that they're in a field of unmelted ice. And uh, from there, Ernest takes it upon himself to become the Golden Age detective and figure out who is the murderer as they start picking off members of his family one by one. But the catch is that everyone in his family has already killed someone. So the question is, in a family of killers, which one is the murderer? We, Kelsey and I both had so much fun with this book. We really did. <laughs> we kept like chatting back and forth at work of like, okay, are you to this part yet? Like, okay, have you figured it out? <laughs> Just kind of having all of oh, those cool. conversations. So for those, you know, new to the genre of the murder mystery, the golden age of mysteries, you know, includes the puzzle-based detective fiction, the kind that... In theory, you can, you know, solve yourself, and they really exploded in popularity in the early 20th century after Agatha Christie's first novel was published in 1921. So, of course, this period includes authors like Christie, but also Dorothy Sayers and G.K. Chesterton. Um, These authors were even part of a secret society of mystery writers, and they, you know, followed a set of rules in writing their detectives. And these rules play a big part in your book. Could you talk a little bit about the Ten Commandments of Detective Fiction and how you discovered these? Yeah, so basically the secret society of mystery writers, um, it's not all that secret, but the phrase secret society has a certain ring to it. (laughs) 
um, that I quite like. Um, one of the members was a bloke named Ronald Knox, and he wrote down uh, what he calls Ten Commandments of Detective Fiction. Now, he's not the only one to write a list of rules for detective fiction, but um, he's sort of got the neatest list, and it sums up nicely in that ten. And it's basically got all of the rules for what you would consider a classic or a golden age mystery, or also called a fair play mystery. And each of his 10 rules sort of speaks to the effort of fair play that he considered essential to these mysteries. And fair play just means that you're not wrong-footing the reader um, by any duplicitous methods, that you're being honest with them. You know, you're allowed to trick them, but it's got to come from a fair place. So one of the rules is that you can't have a set of identical twins unless you flag it in advance, because obviously introducing, oh, there's a twin at the end, <laughs> um, Ronald Knox would have seen as unfair. Um, and so there's several rules about, you know, you're only allowed to use one set of secret passages and um, the narrator can't conceal things from the reader. And what fascinated me about these was because I wanted to write this sort of fun throwback to Golden Age. Um, almost all of them are broken by modern fiction. And it's that's not a criticism of the writers. The, the fiction has sort of evolved in a way um, past that genre. And so none of these rules sort of are really followed in modern psychological suspense, in particular, the reliability of the narrator, in which sort of half the books on the shelves you're expecting the narrator to lie to you or be part of the twist. Um, and so I was just sort of interested, once I found these rules, I was like, well, well, why don't I write a book like that? Why don't I write a book that follows these old-fashioned rules? And the narrator in my book, he's so honest, he just spoils things. He'd just <laughs> say, look, this is coming up. He's not there's no uh, there's no massive mid-book shift where he suddenly is the killer because um, he's open with you the whole way. And I think that openness, hopefully, it's it's a bit of fun. You know, that's it's really a pleasure to hear that you guys were chatting about which part of the book you're up to because that's sort of what I wanted it to be. I wanted it to be a communal experience between readers, but also it's a communal experience between me, the writer, and the reader as well. Um, you should be a team. And I think that the writer and the reader solving things together as a team is very much part of that fair play thing. So, yeah, I had a lot of fun with that. And as you were just talking, it made me think of how you're talking about, like, honesty and narrators and stuff that I was like, did he mean for Ernest's name to, like, come across as, like, Ernest is an earnest, authentic character that I was like, I don't know why I'm just now realizing yes. that. <laughs> But I'll admit it. Absolutely. I I can't resist a pun. So that that's definitely <laughs> not quite as subtle as, as I hoped when I was writing it. But um, Sorry it took me so long to just get there. But, you know. But you got there, Kelsey. I did. That's eventually. <laughs> and you are kind enough to include the rules for us at the very beginning of the book. Um, and I have to say that I was hooked from the first section for sure and I knew it was going to be a fun read and I really was like part of me wanted to dog ear the page because you politely provide us with an opportunity to fold here in the book but I would never do that with a library book I just want to come you know be very honest I would never that do that to a library book but I know that we will have a patron who will do it mm -hmm. I know that this page will be dog eared in our library books. Look, for sure. and, I'm, and I'm sorry about that. Um, <laughs> it is the most complained about 
thing I've ever put in any book. You know, swearing, <laughs> violence, whatever. You get occasional people go, oh, there was a bit much swearing in this book or whatever, even though there's not there's not much swearing in my book. No. Um, but you get the occasional complaint. But the complaints I've got on the how dare you put a little <laughs> dotted line implying that we should fold a page um, is clearly the most complained about thing I've ever done. So I'm quite proud of it, actually. You know, and I, I, I almost feel like that's, that's okay. I almost feel like that's kind of a spoiler in yeah. the book because... Like, it was such a delightful little surprise. I was like, ha! I'm like, now I want to see who does it. Like, I'll, like, look it up be like, mm, now I know you dog ear pages in your books. All right. Yeah, but that... Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, and it serves a larger purpose as well. I mean, as, as you'll, um, you'll know, the, the book is very interested in identifying itself as a book. It's sort of... It, it, the narrator, Ernest, wants you to understand that it's in your hands. You know, in one in one point he says, you've got too many pages against your thumb for this to be the real killer. So you know there's another twist coming or, or whatever. And so just from the very opening, I wanted it to identify itself as a physical object so that the wall between, well, we're all aware that we're, that we're reading a physical book here and, and, you know, the goal of a writer is to get you lost in it, lost in it so you sort of forget it. But my job in this book is to sort of keep pulling you out of it and being like, no, it's in your hands. You're reading it and you've got to think about it that way. So that's why it's in there from a technical level, not just to annoy librarians. <laughs> and, um, you know, our, our narrator of the story is even kind enough to, you know, maybe for the more nervous readers, um, give you the heads up on what pages the murders actually, where people are dying. <laughs> that was fun. Um, yeah, absolutely. Which was another apology I had to make to my typesetter because he, yeah, he lists out all of the page numbers of all of the murders in the first page. And when you go through editing, those page numbers change. So um, we had to be really careful getting it right for the final copy. But I've, it's a lot of fun. So I'm glad it's in there. It does because I actually have a large print version of this book. And so I was like, is it even? I'm like, it is. They got it right. Like, <laughs> yes, I know, went through they pay every attention version. To the detail, I rewrote. Yes. Yeah, I rewrote the e-books. I rewrote the audio books. He talks about, um, he talks directly to the audio listener and says, you're listening to an audio book and this will happen in 10 minutes instead of this will happen in two pages. Oh, how fun. Um, yeah, so we were very careful with all the additions. You know, just, I've had a delightful time paying attention to my experience as a reader with this book. And, um, you know, it's been kind of a while since I've read a traditional mystery and so the rules were fun to read about. Um, and as a reader, I appreciated that the narrator helped keep me, you know, up to speed at points throughout the book. And it did remind me that the author, so you, are in control of the story, yeah. and I was along for the ride. And that took some of the pressure off me in a way to solve the case. And I just kind of slowed down and really enjoyed the book, even though I have to admit I'm no detective. <laughs> I did not solve it before the end. So did you know, like, when you were in the writing process that you had hit on something special? Or do you feel like you took risks in your writing process with this novel? You never know um, if what you're doing is the right thing while you're writing a book. Uh, but certainly I was aware that I was taking risks. And part of that was because I wrote this book in 2020, or I was writing it in 2020, when 
for want of a better analogy, the world collapsed. And I sort of didn't really know what book publishing would look like in two or three years, you know, as a writer um, and a stand-up comedian, you know, all of my live work sort of disappeared immediately. And I'm sort of writing books and I'm thinking, well, I don't really know what's what's going to happen with, with this side of my career. And so I sort of just treated it um, without sounding too, too down on it, but I sort of treated it like, well, maybe this will be my last book, you know? Mm-hmm. And the decision, once I sort of uh, thought that, then I thought, well, what would I regret not putting in a book? And I'm going to do every idea that I've ever thought that was too hard or too difficult or or that's not mainstream enough or that won't appeal commercially to the publisher. I thought, stuff it, because I'm writing as if, you know, this is, this is, um, this is my chance to write this book. And then if nothing else happens, if live entertainment and writing disappears, uh, then, you know, I'll be happy that I put it on the page. And obviously, you know, um, that's very uh, succinct and extreme way of describing it. But sort of that was the feeling I was doing. Everything goes in. Don't regret it just in case this is your last book. And so I was aware I was taking a risk and I was aware in the tone of the narration and, and the fourth wall breaking and and even the, the sort of style of the mystery is very different from a lot of what's out there. Um, so I was aware that what I was doing was very different to anything that I'd read. And I was also aware that I was writing something that I would love to read and that I hadn't seen a lot of out there. Um, whether I knew it was something special, um, you know, you don't really know until people read it, but I certainly believed in it enough, uh, that when we were sort of, when we were early days and we were sort of putting the editorial touches on it. Um, there were certain bits that I I stood by and I said, no, I believe this is what makes this book special. And and thankfully the readers um, all around the world have have connected with that in the way that I'd hoped, um, in, you know, enormously above the way that I'd hoped. So I think that was a long way of answering your, your question that I... No, I it was a great was answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I hoped... I hoped that it was interesting and unique and that people might like it and have fun with it. And, and it surpassed my expectations there. Yeah. And I think that one thing that we are you know, reading in reviews and hearing from readers is that this book really is an original. Um, they, people love the style of writing and how you've crafted this mystery. Yeah. For the most part, I would say they have. I think that um, it's quite interesting when you do something with uh, a bit of comedy in it. And I was very aware you know, to me, it's a mystery novel with some elements of comedy in it. It's not a comedy um, that sort of has a, a crummy mystery behind it. No, there are um, definitely think... some tense parts in mm-hmm. the book, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So you want to blend the genres correctly. Um, and so for me, mystery first with some comic elements in it that hopefully people can enjoy and have fun. And then the whole thing's just supposed to be fun. But the problem with um, writing something that that is... Uh, clever or funny is that you sort of have to, this is the same with stand-up comedy, you sort of have to put yourself in the position where you've got to confidently back yourself that it is funny because comedy is so subjective or, or, or clever because cleverness is subjective as well. So that's what happens when you walk out on stage with a stand-up comedian. They've got to control the room and be like, I am funny and what I'm saying is funny mm-hmm. and therefore it becomes funny. Right, you can tell the best joke in the world, but if you tell it like it's not a funny joke, then nobody will laugh. So that's quite interesting, and it's quite interesting with with readers. I feel like confronting them with 
hey, this is funny or, hey, this is clever, a lot of them take it as a challenge. Well, not a lot of them, but this is the same as stand-up rooms. People come in and sit down and be like, show me it's funny. You know, whereas if you just write write a, a crime novel, like my first two books, and say this is a good crime novel, um, people will sort of accept that and move through the book on their own terms. But I feel like a lot of people start comic uh, sensibilities from a place of doubt, and then you've got to prove to them that you can do what you're saying um, when you bring sort of humour and cleverness into it because people uh, have a sort of a prove it mentality. So that was a lot of fun um, experimenting with that. And, you know, you can't win everyone over, but it seems like most people have really enjoyed those elements. I think there is that um, demographic of mystery reader who takes themselves very seriously. So (laughs) for those people, I don't know, you know, maybe they're, not gonna love the twist on the style but i think for everybody else you know it's fun <laughs> well, well i think i think the serious mystery readers um yeah they have really enjoyed um the homages and the and the uh and the twists on the style yeah. i guess the better way of putting what i was trying to say is with the stand-up analogy is the the person that you can never make laugh from the stage is the guy who's on a first date because his his date is laughing and he's offended that she finds you funny and so then he thinks <laughs> then he he doubles down on how unfunny you are whether or not he believes it he goes well that was the worst thing i've ever seen in my life right so i could do that this is <laughs> so it's sort of the 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 affronting i think is the stand-up analogy so that's the person who's hard to make laugh is a guy on his first date and the girl is enjoying herself he hates when you're on stage. It's, it's quite funny to see in action. I may never forget that analogy. Yeah. That one's going to stay with me for sure. That's a good But thing. I do like, though, that it challenges those maybe like staunch, like, you know, hardcore mystery readers that are like, I only like this prescribed formula to, you know, think differently. And I, I kind of, in a weird way, like hope it trips them up a little bit that, you know, it makes them like think and be like, oh, maybe I don't have this all figured out because the humor is, you know, throwing them off that I'm like, I like that you might not solve this. Well, yeah, totally. I mean, the humor is, is part of the misdirection of, of the soul. And the reason he tells you everything is, is you know, it's like a magic trick. Is I'm showing you the trick, but I'm doing a different trick in the background. So it's still got all of the technical um, bits that mystery writers love um, as well as the humor. So, yeah, I do, I do hope it, it sort of, I've got fantastic responses all across the spectrum of, of uh, staunch, hardcore mystery readers and people who said, I've never read a mystery before, um, but this one sucked me in. So I think there's a very good balance. I probably okay. just feel that way just because we have very, you know, a lot of mystery readers at the branch that I manage and they're always like, what's new? What's exciting? But I'm like, I want something that's going to trip you up. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> As- well, and here's my other theory, right? <clears throat> Um, with mysteries is that uh, 20% of the people should solve it, you know, and 20% of the people will enjoy solving it and think, I figured those bits out, so those clues are fair. I didn't figure out those bits, but I've enjoyed the unveiling. And then you sort of want 70% of people to be like, no, sorry, I've got my my estimates wrong. So 20% of people should figure it out because if you've done a fair job and put it together, all the clues on the page, uh, let's say 60% of people will be like, really enjoyed how it came together, didn't see the twist coming and, and enjoyed the ending. 
that's just sort of made that to read it. 10% of people will be like, my mind is blown. It <laughs> came out of nowhere. And that those people just haven't paid attention to the book and they've enjoyed it on their own terms. But they've been like, whoa, it's crazy, wild. <laughs> when it's actually, you know, if you've done a good job, you shouldn't actually have those readers in sort of golden age mysteries. Um, and then 10% of people who will not solve it, but then either flip to the end or tell everybody that they saw it coming a mile away <laughs> because they're so fragile that they can't accept that they were just, you know, they can't go along for the ride. They're like, well, I, nah, it's, it's crummy. I, I solved it. I solved it. I solved it a mile away. I solved it on page two. And it's, well, the characters who did the murders wasn't even introduced. I solved it. All right, just trust me. Yeah. I'm better than this. That's the first date plug. So that's 10%. But yeah, 20% of the people should get it. And I, and I love that because it's for the reader. It's a game we're playing together and you should have a chance of winning. Is that the way I see it? Yeah. I was going along with your math. I was like, you're convincing with it. So I was like, I'm rolling with it. I was trying to figure out where I was at in that equation. I was just like, he can say whatever. I'll go with the math. It's fine. But as a writer, you know, what is your process for crafting the story? And do you follow the quote unquote rules or do you have a favorite mystery trope or one that you're just like, oh, this one's the worst. You just so strongly dislike it. I I wouldn't say I follow the rules. I'm more of a vibe person. So I, I sort of follow the tone and the style and I sort of suck it in from various places and think about how I want it to feel. And um, the natural side effect of that is that it does end up following quite a few of the the specific rules um because it's matching in tone and, and feeling and style um and then in terms of writing i try to plot out mostly pretty comprehensively the book um and then i leave a few things to surprise me so in this book um i think there's seven or eight family members gosh can't even remember and i wrote it <laughs> um so there's there's that many mysteries of murders because they've each got their own chapter and in each chapter a death happens that is the person's chapter whose it is it's their fault so i've i had eight mysteries to solve who what did each family member do eight of those and then i had the overall mystery which was the ninth and out of those nine mysteries i had the overall mystery solved and i probably had five and a half of the eight i had two that i had no idea what i was going to do and i had half of one that i sort of was half figured out and I was going to try it as I wrote. And so those two mysteries that I didn't know who this person killed or, or how they would play into the plot, I sort of let solve themselves through the writing. So I'm sort of a mix between, um, I'm like 80% plotting and letting it speak to me. And then the trope that I hate, um, I don't like it when you're not, my least favorite trope is when you're not shown what you're shown later. So if somebody uh, is clearly shown picking or is clearly shown walking past the gun and then in the final scene, there's a flashback and the character goes, Oh, I didn't see that correctly. They picked up the gun. And I'm like, but I'm a reader and I don't get anything except your interpretation there. And so that that's the sort of, the Watson rule is that when Watson watches Holmes do something, Watson writes it down exactly. Now Watson can get it wrong and he can misinterpret what's 
what it means, but Watson can't see anything that the reader doesn't see exactly as Watson saw it. So if he says, um, you know, oh, well, this person's actually got blonde hair and they've, they've looked them straight in the face earlier in the novel, but you haven't told the reader that they have blonde hair and it's part of your twist. That, like, that's a trope that sort, of, that sort of gets me a little bit. And which is, which is in Knox's rules is that the Watson or the assistant um, must detail their thoughts exactly and what they're seeing exactly. So that's, the, that's sort of my most essential trope and uh, the thing that will tick me off the most when it's overused. <laughs> So we talked about the golden age of mysteries and that time period of the early 20th century. But in the 1950s, a lot of the world seemed to have moved on from the traditional murder mystery where several suspects gather in a remote location only to discover there's a killer among them. Um, And for the last 10 years, Kelsey and I have had multiple discussions on this. We have been stuck with a lot of unreliable narrators. But now it seems that there really is a renewed interest in the traditional mystery, um, even just in television, you know, I think in movies like Knives Out, Only Murders in the Building. Um, mm. well, so why do you think that readers are being drawn to the style of mystery again? I think it's got to do with uh, justice, which is the short way of saying that I think that between the world wars when the golden age sort of really sparked um it was about understanding who the good guys and who the bad guys were and there's a moral code that the detectives in those books have and the bad guys um will wind up paying for their crimes and the detective will solve it to their moral code and most of the times the victims as well are pretty nasty people you know, nobody is sad when the the victim on Murder on the Orient Express cops it, you know. <laughs> They're not. So it's sort of a group of reprobates and then the a particularly nasty person meets their end and then an even nastier person um, has justice delivered. And we sort of moved away from that. Um, I'm, I was only born in the 80s, so my view is sort of from the 90s and early 2000s, it became really sort of, really grungy how grungy can we get it it's about serial killers and and um it's about you know seven and zodiac and all those kind of things it's more about that sort of captured it because people became more interested in in the evil and and the villain story and then the villains started getting away and so justice wasn't necessarily done um, and then what's happened is the last sort of five years or so, the world's been a bit more topsy turvy and, uh, and a bit more tense. And there's a lot, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of stresses um, uh, globally, um, but also just economically and politically. And 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 people are looking for that sort of safe moral justice again, in which um, the debonair detective who stands for the right things puts away the bad person who stands for the wrong things. And I think that underneath the resurgent is really just a bit of comfort that all can be set right in the world by, um, by an intelligent person with a fedora hat and a cigar, you know, like it, it's got, it's got a certain charm and a certain comfort and a certain old fashioned in it. So I think it comes down to that. And, um, that's my take on it anyway. <laughs> 
So Aussie crime fiction writers are really having a moment. You know, there's Jane Harper, Leanne Moriarty, Candace Fox, Carrie Greenwood, Solari Gentile. You know, they've all had great success so far. You know, we understand that you might be a bit biased, but why do you think that the Australians are getting it so, so right? Yeah, well, I think there's so much to it. Um, you know, I could bore you for hours on the excellent <laughs> crime novels that are here. Um, but I think that there's two reasons. Um, one is that Australia is, we're not a sort of a, a backwater, um, you know, completely otherworldly uh, country, um, which is just so insanely different from the rest of the world. But we are far enough away and there's enough about our country and our land that can feel really, really alien, um, really different. So it, it's quite interesting um, watching authors play with the forebodingness of our landscapes, um, which is, you know, a huge red desert. Um, and then you drive two hours and then suddenly you're in a sparkling crystal um, seaside um, and then you know drive another 10 hours and you're at a snowfield and so i think that that we've got this sort of this beautifully uh sort of uh, wildness to australia which which in fiction can can really be used as a launching pad for a lot of sort of internet small town community stories um you know we have towns of, of 20 people um here uh and that's a really vibrant space to explore characters um, and put them in the midst of a crime, such as what the dry did. And I think that it's very much a it's very much a, a perspective thing because it's not necessarily the real Australia, but it feels so uh, it feels so captivating and so interesting when we we put things that we sort of see every day or don't really think about. And then other people go, wow, I can't believe there's, you know, there's a snake in your toilet or whatever, <laughs> which is the way that people sort of view Australia who haven't been to Australia. Um, but there's that sort of distance and that allows you a lot of um, a lot of opportunities in the suspense of the landscape. And that's the same reason why Scandinavian noir really took off when it did. Mm -hmm. Again, it's those locked communities. They're ripe for crimes and it feels distant. Um, and it's perception of Scandinavia that's not, accurate to um everyone that lives there but there's these little pockets that feel so uh wow life is really like that on a queensland cattle station as jane harper did so well in the lost the lost man and it really captivates um from that perspective and then the other reason is i just think australia has a lot of great writers um which sounds sort of simplistic but we're a small market with you know a, our population is whatever it is at the moment 25 million or something um and so the publishing here um to get through to get in uh the writing has to be really really strong not that it doesn't elsewhere but i feel like um let me rephrase it the writing in australia our genres sort of blend a little bit more so we don't quite have the same 
uh, dissection of, well, this is a crime novel um, and this is a literary novel and, and, and such and such. We do on the shelves, but I think that everybody that everybody in every genre in Australia is sort of is, is writing, writing up a little bit. Um, I haven't explained that correctly, but I'm trying to think about what my point is. Everyone's well, really good. It's hard to get published in Australia, so everybody has to be really good. Well, <laughs> yes, I, I have to admit, so we mentioned um, in your bio that your um, first book um, was shortlisted for the Ned Kelly Award for Best Debut Crime Fiction. And I was like, what's a Ned Kelly Award? So, of course, I had to look it up. And so I learned a lot. And then I looked at who was on that list. Um, for those awards, and I thought this is definitely a list I need to keep my eye on. Um, so, anyway, for yeah, those it's... who don't know, like I didn't know, the Ned Kelly Awards, affectionately referred to as the Neddies, if I got that right, um, are Australia's leading literary awards for crime writing in both crime fiction and true crime genres. Yeah, so they're, they're, they're I mean, they're amazing. Um, the the author that beat me uh, the year was Dervil McTiernan. So, you know, it's 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 an incredible uh, launching pad for lots of lots of writers in that space. I just think yeah, we've got great great crime novelists full stop. Um I don't know if there's something in the water or if it's just that um <laughs> and then there's that like, we're having a moment. You definitely can go down that rabbit hole because then I was like I've heard Ned Kelly. Who's Ned Kelly? And then I was like, what's a bush ranger? And like, I went down this whole like rabbit hole. She went of, down the library and rabbit I hole. did. But now I feel so yeah, educated and aware. <laughs> yeah, Ned Kelly's an interesting sort of, uh, I don't know. He's sort of our Robin Hood in a little bit, but um, in a little way, you know. He's a horrible, not a horrible, horrible is the wrong word. But, you know, he murdered He was people. an outlaw, um, right? Kind of, I, he I was an outlaw and he murdered people, but yeah. he was also sort of uh, an anti-establishment sort of, you know, stick it to the man kind of uh, guy, which is how it's sort of represented through cultural depictions over the years. But on the other hand, he also, he did kill some innocent people and that's not good. So, no. it's, so he's it's complex. A conflicting, uh, <laughs> he's a complex yeah, man. It's a, it's a complex relationship with uh, with old man Kelly here in Australia. So, of course, we know just from our conversation that you are a reader. Um, and could you share some of your favorite books, new or old, with us and um, touch on how being a reader has shaped you as an author? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I'll answer that question in reverse so I can think about what my favorite books are. Um, but doing, I mean, reading widely shapes me as an author because I want to write things that I'm not reading. Um, I want to, uh, really enjoy what people are putting out. Um, but then think about, well, what do I really want to read that's not on the shelf? And what, what, what would I really wish somebody would write for me? Um, so that really helps as a reader. And then also it, it teaches you what you love. And, um, oh, I wish I could do it like this person or, or, or what you, you know, you think, okay, well, that, that was a, that was a good, a good book, but, um, not for me. And so I don't want to write a book like that. So I think that that sort of, um, speaks to how reading sort of shapes your tastes and what you, what you can do. Also, it's great for marveling at stuff that you will never be able to <laughs> achieve. You know, I read some books and I think, 
I will never be able to write like that. I really love this book, but um, this person has just nailed it and it's so clever and there's so much awe there. And I think I quite like that feeling because then you go away and you think, oh, I'm not as good. I'll never be as good. <laughs> and then somebody emails you and says, wow, how did you write that book? You know, I wish I could write like that. And you're like, oh my God, it happens to everyone. So it, yes. it's, it's a nice little, um, yeah, you just sort of, you, you build your, like I said before, you it's vibe, it's tone, it's it's sort of feeling out, finding out what you love and also what the market loves and, and um, see if you can give them something different. Um, my favourite books, um, well, a shout out again to Jane Harper. Um, I think The Lost Man is is her best. Um, it's an incredible novel set on an outback station in Queensland. Um, and a new one, Exiles, is very good. So she's incredible. And I think that I wouldn't have a writing career without Jane Harper because I think she kicked the door down uh, and allowed a lot of us crime writers in Australia to get published um, because there wasn't much of a crime scene before she came along and, and you know, publishers sort of didn't think it was the most commercially viable genre. Um, and then she sort of rejigged that for everybody. So I think every Australian crime author sort of owes her a debt, um, alongside many others who were writing at the time, but it sort of came about around the dry. Um, my other favourite is an Australian novelist called Peter Temple, and he wrote a book called The Broken Shore, um, which is a bit older, and it is just a fantastic uh, capture of a small community and a murder that happens there and a detective that comes in and solves it. Um, and it's just really wonderfully written. And the other book I will always, always speak to and adore is by Stuart Turton, which is called The Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle. Okay. Um, or it might be The Seven and a Half Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle in the US. Um, yeah, I think it is. And yeah, it's it is. a Jane Austen period set murder mystery mixed with Groundhog Day where the protagonist keeps replaying the same day over and over again in different um, bodies and has to solve the crime before midnight, before he wakes up as a different person in the cast of suspects. And it's so clever and it's so ballsy and it's so interesting. Um, yeah, really adore it. Oh, and um, anything by Anthony Horowitz. I think he's really fantastic. Well, thank you for sharing those. I think we're... As every time we ever ask anybody, you know, your to-be-read list grows and grows and grows. But I think we've got some great suggestions. And we know Thank that's a you. tough question. So yeah, was, it is. Was... It's hard to pick your favorites. Yes, yeah. um, it is. And I'll I'll hang this call up and I'll be like, oh, I left that person out. I left that person out. <laughs> and well, God, I... I hope they don't hear this podcast because I should have mentioned them. You know, it's tricky. But fans of this book um, will be anxiously waiting to hear what is coming next. Um, and we read that HBO about the film rights to everyone in my family has killed someone and it will be developed as a limited series. So fans will have that to look forward to, which is very exciting. And I'm going to guess that there's going to be another book. Any teasers? Yeah. Well, yeah, totally. Um, I mean, I, I, I can even tell you the title. I think well, it's, well. it's online. So um, the, yes, HBO is making it. A television show um, out of it which is very very exciting and then the next book is uh, Ernest Cunningham is back oh. um, and 
along with some of the surviving members of everyone in my family has killed someone. Um, and he finds himself embroiled in a new murder mystery um, in a particular setting. And the title of that book is Everyone on This Train is a Suspect. Oh, very, very clever. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll definitely have that to look forward to. And we know that fans of this book will also be coming in to libraries and bookstores to get their hands on your other novels. And I just wanted to clarify, your first novel we listed as Greenlight, but was it published under a different title in the States? Was it Trust Me When I Lie? Yes, that's the U.S. title. So in the yeah. U.S., if you're looking for the first award-winning book, look for Trust Me When I Lie. And we mentioned yes, earlier yeah. that you're also a successful stand-up comedian playing sold-out shows and live festivals from Melbourne to Edinburgh. And offstage, you work with some of Australia's best-loved authors at Curtis Brown Australia. Care to drop any names here or any other upcoming shows or, you know, even you kind of mentioned books, but anything else we should keep an eye out for? Gosh, you got me on the spot there. Yeah, sorry. sorry. <laughs> we always have one question that puts um, everybody on the spot. Oh, well, I, I think um, Jane Harp is, is, is my book pick for the books. Keep an eye out for her stuff. Um, and then Australian comedian who's since moved to the US and um, making their names over there. There's two of them. Um, one of them is Ronnie Chen, who probably doesn't really need me to plug him, but he's, um, <laughs> he's amazing. He's so funny. Uh, so I recommend catching his show wherever it's around. Um, and then a an act named Randy Feltface, who is a purple puppet that does stand-up <laughs> comedy. And he's like a Jim Henson um, puppeteer who does stand-up. And he's just, I mean, he's a great stand-up comic, plus he's a puppet. It's its its unbelievably good. And hey, I think he's touring the US um, this year. So he's getting around over the next couple of months. So Randy Feltface, if you like... Uh, comedy a little bit more abstract and listeners can keep up with you on instagram um, at stevenson experience and on facebook the stevenson experience so we have to give you a huge thank you for joining us on the first 50 pages today it's been so fun to read everyone in my family has killed someone and to chat with you today yeah thanks for having me it's been a pleasure and i'm, I'm so glad you enjoyed the book and um Hopefully nobody uh, folds too many of the pages in your <laughs> library copies. We might let it slide. We'll forgive them. 